The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. Father, thank you for the joy of being together with your people. Uh, Thank you for this particular privilege we have to sing to you in praise and worship and now to come around your word together. Will you open our eyes that we might see wonderful things from your law and especially that we would see most clearly our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Might we find joy in him and our connection with him, we pray in his name, amen. How many of you have uh, small children in the home? Okay, how many have small grandchildren? Great-grandchildren? How many of you know a short person somewhere, anywhere? Okay, so if you know little people, you will appreciate this story I found uh, by author Paul Tripp. Many of you know Paul Tripp. When his son Justin was only four years old, uh, Paul Tripp tells the story that uh, he came to him, a bright little boy, a world full of questions, and uh, he recounts the occasion. We sat down on the edge of the couch together, and he shared with me his dream for his future. Uh, when I grow up, Daddy, I want to be a lion. Well, who wouldn't, I thought, with all that King of the Jungle stuff we hear so much about. Uh, Turns out his mother had been reading him a book about all the animals in Africa, and he was enthralled. He was in that time of life when you come across a book that you want to read over and over and over. Any parents in that stage right now? The wearying stage? After about 500 readings, he was completely settled on what he wanted to do with his future. He wanted to be a lion. After he shared why he had chosen his future at the top of the feline world, I launched into a little lesson on biblical anthropology. Uh, He sat wide-eyed and attentive as I laboriously attempted to help him understand the doctrine of creation and its specific implications for the identity of human beings. And he, he seemed interested, as I did everything I could to distinguish animals from people, but as I drove on, uh, trip notes, I noticed that he was getting a little fidgety and was no longer looking at me with rapt attention, but I thought I was, he was still taking it all in. I wrapped up my identity of human beings monologue and asked him if he understood what his daddy was trying to say. He looked up at me quite confidently and said, yes, I do, daddy. When I grow up, I want to be a giraffe. (laughs) So I ended my failed attempt at early childhood theological education, gave him a big hug, and off he ran. Now, I like that story because children do identity much more honestly than we big people do. In fact, if you'll notice, children are constantly thinking about identity. They're into sports heroes and movie stars and music icons. And then they grow up. And like us, we don't think much about identity, at least as much as children do. And yet the reality is, identity is really, really profound. Identity is really just how you think about yourself. How we think about ourselves has a profound effect on our lives. You say, well, why is that? Well, let me ask you a question. Who is the most influential person in your life? Well, you are, right? You think within yourself, you think about yourself, you talk to yourself, you are the most influential person in your life. So how you think about yourself has a drastic and profound effect on how you do life. And if you think about it, Identity is all over our lives. We just don't think about it like that very often. Think of all the ways that we tend to define ourselves, okay? Can we just do that kind of as a group exercise here for a moment? We do identity when we fail. And we do identity when we succeed, don't we? 
We, we think through the lens of identity when we're uncertain about something. And we see identity when we're very confident in some area. We, we experience identity issues when we experience loss, like the loss of a loved one or a friend, and we try to process all of that and think about who we are in light of this family member or child or spouse that just passed away. We do identity when change happens. How, do you, how are you guys doing with change, by the way? You know, God is orchestrating your life and my life so that change is happening all the time, and how we respond to change says something about our identity, doesn't it? We do identity when we feel worthless or unloved or even hated. Identity shows up when we think about our weight, our exercise, our diet, our health. We do identity when we think about our performance and achievement. We do identity when we are devastated by criticism and uplifted by encouragement. We do identity when we struggle to fit in, when there are cliques in our church and cliques in our workplace that we want to be a part of, or if we're a part of one, we, we feel good about that. Identity shows up in our status, the clothes we buy, the music we listen to, the, the stuff we acquire. Identity shows up in retirement. You know, Some of you guys are in that retirement season of life, and you might be there, and this is your retirement dream, and, and, you, and well, that's identity, isn't it? Or... Or maybe you get to retirement and you're looking backwards and you're going, man, I wish I had done some things differently. In fact, if you want to know about identity, all you have to do is watch one college football game. In fact, I think that everything you need to know about fallen human beings, you can find in one college football game. I mean, why, why does a middle-aged grown man paint himself blue? and acquire season, of season tickets at thousands of dollars, and he goes all over the country all during football season so he can sit on the 50-yard line in front of the Fox Sports cameras so that he can make a fool on himself on national TV. Because he's doing identity, isn't he? I hate to be the one to break it to you, but you have an identity problem, and I do too. It's all over our lives. The good news is at its core, the Bible is about identity. The Bible is about who you are and how you ought to think about yourself. And specifically, the Bible highlights how a believer's union with Jesus, that we are united to Christ, connects with and really is ought to be the foundation of our identity. So what I want to do in our time is explore with you three questions to try to connect those two things. What does union with Jesus, what does the fact that we are united with Christ if you've trusted in him as your Lord and Savior, what does that have to do with your identity? Uh, so three questions to try to unpack that, and uh, you can follow along up here. If I can get the PowerPoint to behave. Look at that, there we go. Here's question number one. Question number one is this. What is the relationship between identity and union. What is the relationship between that? And to, and to see that, I want you to go back with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. So if you would turn with me, please, or click as it might be, back to Genesis chapter 1. And let's go back to where all this started. Um, I, I imagine, as other speakers have done, we're going to look at some of these early chapters of Genesis because identity is really rooted in these first couple chapters. So Genesis chapter 1, we're going to just kind of parachute into the chapter here, and the verses I want to look at are verses 26 and 27. Now, you'll recall that uh, what's happened is God is making the universe in six normal days 
We're in day six as we come to verse 26, and the highlight of his creation is when he makes man and woman in his image and in his likeness. And what I want you to see as we try to answer this question is that identity is established in union with the creator. That's where all this starts. Identity is established in union with the creator. Follow along with me as I read starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I want you to notice uh, right out of the gate here that the identity of human beings is established in the special creation of God who made people in his image and likeness for relationship with him. You say, how do we know all that? Because the divine commentary on this verse is Colossians chapter 1. And you don't need to turn there. You you know the verse. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, all things were made by Jesus and for Jesus, right? For him and by him. So so we recognize that that is the, the intent here. God makes human beings for a relationship with him. And we notice here, and in other places in Scripture, that God made people uniquely in his image and likeness. And uh, how, how do we think about that in terms of identity, in terms of our union with Christ? Well, maybe one of the best analogies we can think of is to recognize that to be made in the image of likeness of God means that you and I were made to be, as it were, a spiritual mirror. We were made to reflect the character and attributes of God as we look to him in relationship with him. We're made to reflect him in who he is. So, for example, we ought to be compassionate to others because the Bible says God is compassionate. We ought to love one another because God loves people. We ought to care about righteousness and holiness and truth because God is full of righteousness and holiness and truth. So we are made to be a, a divine mirror reflecting the character of God back to him. You say, well, how does that work? Well, if we were made for God, it's when we look to him and we relate to him, we worship him, we we love him, we value him, we esteem him, that we then reflect those characteristics that he has back to him. And that is how identity is designed to work. Now, again, we'll we'll use our, our short person example just to make sure if this works, right? Because children do identity very, very clearly, You've got a small child, and he has a sports hero or a, a music icon, a rock star, someone that they've seen on a Netflix series, right? And that, that person becomes their hero. And, and what do children do when that happens? They talk about them. They talk to other people about them. They, they watch them. They listen to them. They're, they're always centering their life around them. And what happens over time is that child esteems and loves and values that figure. They almost begin to take on their identity, don't they? They talk like them. They might dress like them. They might run around the house with a cape and something like that because they want to be like them. And and that is how God designed identity. As we would esteem God and love him and value him and worship him, we reflect his image and likeness. That's identity. We will reflect what we love and value and esteem and worship most of all. And that gives us a little hint as as we put all this together in terms of what identity is really about. And I appreciate 
uh, what Jeremy said about identity being very complex, because it is. There are layers of identity, and even in Genesis here, we'll see some of those things develop. But at its core, identity is simply how I think about myself in light of what I love and value and esteem and ultimately worship. That's identity, and that's how God designed it. Now, you'll note here that there is a close association between identity and worship. And I want you to remember that because when we get to Romans in a moment, you'll see that come back, okay? But for now, this is how identity works. We love and esteem and value God. Made in his image, we reflect his character back to him, and that brings him glory. Now, let's make some observations if you're tracking with me on this, okay? Primary identity is based on a relationship with God, a union with him, if you will. Identity is always based on some sort of association or union or relationship. Now, now you need to get this. Identity was never meant to function apart from a relationship with God. That's what we're seeing here. God designed it to work hand in hand with relationship with him. People are hardwired as image bearers, made to worship God and reflect his glory, and this relationship is the lens of human identity. The trajectory of identity, you need to get this, the trajectory, where is identity aiming at? It's designed by God to aim upward. Identity is named upward at our relationship with God. Identity was never designed to be aimed inward in terms of trying to figure it out in myself or outward in terms of what those other people think about me or my abilities. Identity was designed in its trajectory to be upward. And God designs us to be a spiritual mirror that would reflect his glory. Now, God rigged it even more than that. Now follow me here. If we are made to reflect the character of God as an image bearer, when that works the way it's supposed to, even when human beings look inside of themselves of her identity, what should they see? They should see the image of God, right? So it puts us right back there. So wherever we look, we ought to see the glory and character of God reflected back to him. And that is what we might call a primary identity in terms of how God designed it. Now you'll notice, if you look back at the text, there are what we might call secondary identities in this text, aren't there? We see in verse 27 that God made them male and female. Well, that's an identity, isn't it? Verse 28, God made uh, Adam and Eve to rule over creation. God made Adam in verse 215 to be the garden tender. In verse two, verse eight, chapter 2, verse 18, we see that God made woman to be the helper and man to be the leader. So there's all these other secondary identities, and those are important and contribute to this overall thing we call identity. But I want you to see that the primary identity is identity in God. That's what we see here. A primary identity as a relationship with God as we reflect him. Our primary identity is designed to be vertical, not horizontal. Adam's primary identity is not found in his wife, in his vocation in the garden, his stewardship over creation, his performance in naming the animals, his looks, his athletic ability, or anything else. It's in God alone. Now, I want you to remember that when we meet with somebody in counseling care, whether that's a conversation over coffee in Starbucks, whether that's the formal biblical counseling where an appointment is made and homework is given, I want you to remember that anytime we do that, we are sitting down with a fellow image bearer made by God and for God to reflect his glory. And that is a very holy thing to do, isn't it? 
That's a very significant thing to do, to sit down with another image bearer. And you know what I found? People need to hear that they are not a cosmic accident. They are not merely a product of their upbringing or their genetics or their education or whether they had a good home life or not, their education. They are the unique creation of a sovereign God who made them particularly for himself, for worship, to love and to find joy and obedience in that relationship. So a conversation about identity really has to start right here in Genesis 1, doesn't it? That we are made by God and for God to reflect his glory. Listen to Calvin. Man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation then to look into himself. You see that? We have to know God first before we can then know ourselves because we were made in his very image. Okay, so that's, that's question number one, answer number one. The, the relationship is that identity is founded in a union with the creator. Now, watch what happens next. What causes identity problems then? Well, just flip the page and look at Genesis chapter three. What causes identity problems? Well, the reality is, as we look at Genesis chapter three, is that our identity was distorted in the fall. And uh, you know the story, uh, Genesis chapter three, uh, Jeremy unpacked a little bit of this for us earlier this morning. Look at this, chapter three, verse one. Then the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, And he said to the woman, indeed has God said. We'll just stop right there. I want you to see that all goes wrong when men and women begin to question what God has clearly said. And in the context of the fall, you guys understand, there there are thousands of things that happen right here, okay? But what I want you to focus on here is how the fall affects union and thus affects our identity. Everything goes wrong when they begin to question God and question his word. What we're going to see in the fall is that men and women decide to go outside of their relationship with God in order to find identity. I mean, that's what happens as, as the story develops here. What does the serpent say to them, uh, directly challenging God, as it says there in verse four, you surely shall not die, for God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when that happened, when men and women began to question God and contemplate thinking about what is good for them and best for them apart from their relationship with him, that had massive impact on their identity. When they turned away from God, turned away from his design and intent, all went wrong, didn't it? They exchanged humble reliance on God for trying to have an autonomy from him. They, they exchanged independent, or a dependence on God for having independence on their own. Instead of looking for good inside of the law of God, they looked for good outside of his law and outside of his purposes. And rejecting their true identity as image bearers, they departed to find their own identity in themselves. And all that that comes as we see them say, I will be like God. We go outside of ourselves and what God has said to pursue identity. So what what happens here? Their sin separates them from God. We we know in Romans chapter four and Romans chapter five that the result of the fall is that men and women are separated in their relationship from God. 
Well, what's the impact of that on identity? This God that we were made to reflect and image and value and esteem, now that relationship is broken and, and we're left to do identity on our own. We're on an island of identity. Identity is distorted. Identity is confused. And, and you'll notice Adam and Eve didn't stop doing identity when this happened, did they? They, they continued to do identity. They, 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 they had to learn how to do it apart from God. As they turned away from God, now they must form identity from either inside of themselves or outside of themselves. And you know, in the very next verse, we begin to see the detrimental effects of this separation right away in terms of their identity. What does Adam and Eve, what does the next verse say? As soon as they eat from the forbidden tree, what's the first thing that happens? Their eyes were opened and they knew what? They knew they were naked, right? Or as we say in the South, like Jeremy said, naked. That's, don't know where that came from, but that's how we say it. What, what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, nakedness is always associated with shame and guilt. And, and that's the Hebrew way of saying now they're experiencing shame and guilt. Instead of reflecting God and honoring him and loving him, now they're experiencing something they were never designed to experience. The two great commandments, right? Love God Love neighbor. Well, what happens in the subsequent verses? Adam is running away from God and he's blaming his neighbor, isn't he? Lord, it was the woman that you gave me. And so we can see all is beginning to go wrong. As they turn away from God, now identity must come from other things. And you know, that explains something. Have you ever noticed the chronic need of human beings to create identity? We do it all the time, don't we? And that chronic need to make identity, to do identity, is an echo of what happens in this chapter. Now, we know that the image of God in people here becomes distorted and marred and broken as a result of the fall. It's not lost, but the Bible's going to say things like this in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Or Ecclesiastes 7.29, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. So that image of God is distorted and broken and marred. It still reflects, but it reflects a broken image, a distorted image. And the end result is havoc on our identity. When, when men and women turn away from God to do identity, all goes wrong. Now, you know what the rest of the Bible is? It's evidence of fallen people separated from God trying to do identity. And you will see this all over the Bible. You will see this when you counsel people. You will see this in yourselves. And trying to categorize this is challenging, but can I just show you four ways that fallen people try to do identity apart from God? It really is interesting as you see these all over Scripture. Now, we're gonna have, not going to have a chance to, to go into each one of these in detail, but let me just do some uh, expository flybys here, if we can call them that, okay? Uh, you know these verses. Men and women sometimes do identity ignorance, and that's where you're, you're, you just don't know your union. You don't know that God created you for a purpose in his image. Uh, you remember this in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is in Athens, and uh, he's waiting around, and he's looking at the sites, and he sees 
uh, idols, right? Because they, they worshiped idols. And he, ac- he actually found an idol that said to an unknown God. Well, what's that? That's identity ignorance, isn't it? They don't even know who they're worshiping. And so Paul pulls some of these folks aside and says, you know, I, I see that you're very religious. You're, you're worshiping but you don't know who you're worshiping. So can I declare to you the truth about that? And and what does he do? Do you remember what he does in that chapter? He goes back to creation and says, there is a God who created you, and in fact, even some of your poets have written about this. So Paul is demonstrating that sometimes people are just flat out ignorant of their identity. They don't know anything about their union. And the result of that is they are gonna worship the wrong things and they're gonna engage in idolatry. So that's that's one way that fallen human beings try to do identity. There's another identity problem we see in Scripture, and that's identity amnesia. Identity amnesia. Paul talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 1, where he is talking about the qualities that should be growing and developing in Christians, things like knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness. And then he says this, If you lack the fruit of spiritual maturity in your life, you know why? Because you've forgotten your identity. You've forgotten who Christ has died and made you to be in him. Now, Acts 17 is describing the ignorance of unbelievers. This is a, a passage really directed at Christians, isn't it? That we believers can be ignorant by, by forgetting our identity in Christ and And the result of this, Peter says, is you are going to be useless and fruitless for Jesus if you forget your identity. Now, you don't want to be fruitless, do you? You don't want to be useless. You want to be effective in ministry and and growing as a Christian. And so we have to remember our identity and not forget about it. So we can be ignorant of our identity. We We can forget about it in identity amnesia. How about this? Identity rebellion. The poster boy for that, Jonah. You read Jonah recently? Jonah, the prophet of God, God says, go to Nineveh. What does he do? He looks at the company. He literally goes 180 degrees the opposite direction. And he runs away from God. He flees from the presence of God. And there's that, there's that moment on the boat when the pagan sailors are there and God has brought a storm and the sailors figure out that Jonah is the cause of the storm. And they go to Jonah and they say, who are you? Tell us about you. And he says, well, well, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear God who made the heavens and who made the sea that's roaring and about to kill them and the dry land. And there's such irony there, right? Because he's saying he fears God, but what is he doing? He's running away from God. He's just flat out rebelling against his identity there, isn't he? And the irony of it is the the pagan sailors are like, what are you doing? Because they fear God more than he does in that context. So the outcome of of identity rebellion where you just flat out reject your union is disobedience and divine discipline even. Can I ask you a question? Are you forgetful of your identity in Christ? Christ? Or maybe are you just flat out rebelling against it? You just don't want to live in light of who God made you to be. That's one of the challenges we see in our Bibles. Let's look at one more. One more example of how fallen human beings try to do identity apart from God. We'll call this identity replacement. 
identity replacement. I do want you to turn over to look at, at this one. So flip over to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. Romans chapter 1. And let's watch how fallen human beings, sinful people, try to do identity broken in their relationship with God. This text is describing what all fallen people do, okay? What do all fallen people do according to this verse? Well, let's look at in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So all fallen people, as Paul begins to unfold the gospel here, he says that when men and women are separated from God, they, they don't stop worshiping, they don't stop doing identity. What they do is they exchange worshiping God for worshiping something else. Fallen human beings are God replacers, is what we are. Now if you remember, going back to Genesis 1 and Colossians 1, that our identity follows what we worship. That's how God designed it. We, we think of ourselves in light of who or what we're worshiping. So if that happens, when we replace God and when we engage in false worship, our identity follows along those lines. You see, all identity problems are really worship problems, ultimately, because our identity follows that. And you think about that. What, what are some of the ways we replace God, right? It might be a sports team. It might be your vocation, it might be how you look, it might be your health or exercise, how fit you are, it might be your children and, and how well they're doing. That we, we can take any good thing that God has given us in creation and we can turn it into a God replacement then we, that we then worship and wrap our life around. And then our identity follows likewise. So if you identify that, that guy that paints himself blue and travels all over the country to root for his sports team, when his sports team loses, what happens to his identity? He's a miserable wreck for a week, isn't he? Because our identity follows what he worships. So that helps us to see that in our fallenness, what we do is we replace God and our identity follows that false worship. Now, where does this go? Look down at the end of Romans. When we replace God and when we form identity around those false gods, we see broken relationships and manipulation and jealousy and ungodly competition and idolatry. Look at the list here at the end of Romans chapter 1. When we replace God and worship other things, people are filled with unrighteousness. Verse 29, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, Boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and on and on and on. We see the havoc of false worship and the identity crisis that comes from it when we replace God in our lives. Listen, as children of Adam and Eve, fallen human beings don't have an identity crisis, they are an identity crisis. That's what our Apostle Paul is arguing here. Disconnected from God, we are distorted image bearers, desperately looking both inward and outward for meaning and purpose and identity. And what we need is an identity rescuer. An identity rescuer. And that brings us 
to the main text we want to look at in Romans chapter 6 today. I want to ask this final question, which will be where we spend most of our time here. How does union with Christ affect identity? How does union with Christ affect identity? Well, God initiates his identity rescuing plan. In eternity past, as Deepak helped us to see so helpfully last night, God made a plan for his people to be united with his son, Jesus. And then that gets played out in time, doesn't it? What's the first way we see that happen in the course of time? God sends forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, the scripture tells us, right? So if God is going to rescue us, separated from our creator, he sends his son, and the first thing Jesus does is he does what? He takes on a human nature. He assumes our identity in the incarnation. The the Son of God, fully God, eternally God, takes on a human nature uh, within himself. And he comes to the earth to live the life that we should have lived, to, to die the death that we should have died in order to rescue people from their sin and all of its consequences. We know in... Uh, In the gospel that Jesus comes and lives a perfect life of righteousness. He dies a death of substitution. He rises from the dead in order to reconcile sinful people back to God. So that the image of God, and this is so important. That's why we have to start in Genesis. Because that image, we were made to reflect God. And then in the fall, it gets broken and marred and distorted. So we don't reflect God. In the gospel, what is God doing? He is restoring and fixing and repairing and renewing that image so that we once again reflect the glory and character of God. That's what God is doing in the gospel, transforming people again into his image and likeness so that we reflect his glory. And as we come in relationship with him and that image of God is restored, our identity is progressively restored as well. Now, for what Jesus did in the gospel to help us in our alienation from God and our separation from him, we have to somehow access him. We we have to somehow become connected to him. Listen to Calvin on this. We must understand, Calvin writes, that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, All that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. All that he, Christ, possesses is nothing to us unless we can grow into one body with him. You get that? So Jesus comes, he he accomplishes the work of redemption, but we have to access it in some way. And that is what we call union with Christ. Union with Christ is the theological nerve center of Christian identity. Because everything about our identity, everything about who Christ is and what he's done comes to us through our union with him. John Murray in his classic, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, says this. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. All to which the people of God have been predestined in the eternal election of God. All that, he has, all that has been secured and procured for them in the once for all accomplishment of redemption. All of which they become the actual partakers in the application of redemption. And all that by God's grace they will become in the state of consummated bliss is embraced within and the compass of union and communion 
with Christ. So that's the introduction. I want to show you in Romans chapter 6, six ways that a believer's union with Christ transforms identity. Okay, Because this is all about how we think about ourselves as a foundational identity. The work of Christ informs and drives every aspect of a believer's identity in him. Okay, So I want you to see six ways that that happens. Okay, Let's look at Romans chapter 6 now and watch how this works. The first thing we get in our union with Christ is a new relationship. A new relationship. And we see that through the repetition of that phrase, in Christ, or into Christ. Look at verse 3 with me. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now in the context, at the end of chapter 5, Paul has just argued that even when you super sin, God provides extra grace that will overcome even that sin. Grace always overcomes sin. So in chapter 6, verse 1, Paul anticipates a question. Well, if that's how it is, should we continue in sin that grace may increase? And he says, may it never be. And then he, he argues here from verse 3. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And that's his point here. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that you have been connected with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection? And he uses here, you'll notice, baptism language. You say, why is he using baptism language? Because baptism pictures the connection with Jesus in a particularly graphic and visual way. We are united with Christ, according to this text, in his death and burial and resurrection. So, so Paul's really using baptism here just to speak of our conversion as it's pictured in water baptism. Now notice the language here. The language here is of a new relationship, this in Christ language. Notice in our verse, we are baptized into Christ. Notice verse 8, we are with Christ. Verses 4, 5, 6, and 8, we are with him. Verses 11 and 23, we are in Christ Jesus. Over 90 times in the New Testament, you will see that little phrase, in Christ. And that is code language for union with him. So when we see that, we see, ah, that's, that's my connection with Jesus being talked about. In fact, this relationship is so important, the Bible has so many different facets to how we think about this union with Christ. Let me just give you a few of them. We are a new creature. Old things have passed away. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. We are alive in him though we were formerly dead in sin, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. We were once an enemy, now we are a reconciled friend, Romans 5, verse 10. We were separated and alienated, and now we're restored into fellowship, 2 Corinthians 5, 18. We were rejected, and now we are accepted, Romans 15, 7. We were guilty before God, but now we have been justified and Forgiven, and God has actually declared that person trusting in Christ not guilty but righteous because of the work of Christ, Romans 3, 21. We were children deserving of wrath, 
and now we are beloved and adopted into the family of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. That all gets summed up in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul declares, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's union with Christ language, and it signifies this new relationship we have by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, I want you to notice something about union with Christ. Jesus in the gospel does not become our cosmic cheerleader rooting from the sidelines about how great we are and, you know, he loves us, so we ought to love ourselves. No, no, no. Did you notice the violence of this text? When you trust in Christ, you are united with him in his death and burial and resurrection. You die with him. This is not extreme humanity makeover, Jesus edition, right? This is you die. You, you are crucified with him. You say, why is that? Because we are so holy, utterly wicked and depraved that nothing short of death will bring us a new identity. There's no renovation possible. There's no restoration possible. We die with him, and then we are raised to walk in newness of life, and that is our new identity in him. Trusting in Jesus is not some Christian version of finding yourself. It is dying to yourself to find identity in Jesus alone. That's what he wants us to see. And that is, number one, that we have a new relationship. Number two, we have a new ability a new ability, and there it is in verses five and following. This new ability is that believers don't have to sin anymore. Look at verse five. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, again, the, the Bible has many different ways that it describes what happens in the work of Christ in redemption. And we've talked about some of those already, right? We've seen justification, we've seen union, we've seen identity and, and, uh, and these things. Notice the language here. The language here is of slavery and bondage. Did you get that? The, the picture here is before we come to Christ, we are slaves to our sin. This is, this is slavery language. Sin is our master. We are a slave to it. it it's as if we have this 2,000-pound iron ball chained to our foot, and we just walk through life dragging this thing all around. You take your sin everywhere with you. In, in John chapter 8, Jesus said the one who commits sin is a slave of sin. And you can try, you can... Uh, try to work that out, you can work hard at it, and you cannot get away from your slavery to sin. But what happens in the gospel? When you're united with Christ and in union with him in his death and burial and resurrection, it says here we are no longer a slave to sin. In fact, we sang about that uh, just a few minutes ago, didn't we? Uh, Wesley's hymn, right? He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood avails for me, right? That, that, that's, that, that's the uh, reminder here that we are no longer a slave to sin. Now look at, look at the next verse. Look at verse 8. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, watch this, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. What is Paul saying? He is saying Christ's work is sufficient for you. It is a once and done work, and if you are in him, you have been united with him in that the work of redemption is finished and accomplished and complete. You need to remember this. Your identity is based on the finished work of Jesus, not your performance. He's never going to die again. It's done. It's complete. You are in him. He is in you. He's never going to die again. It's sufficient. And that means your identity is fixed in his once and for all completed work of redemption. And we need to rest in that, don't we? Don't get up in the morning and do identity in your performance. Don't get up and do identity in your relationships. Don't get up and do identity in all these other things. Do identity in the finished work of Christ. If you are in him and he is in you, that work is sufficient for your identity. You have a new ability in him. Number three, you have a new purpose. A new purpose. And that purpose is to live for him in righteousness. Look at verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I've got good news for you. As a Christian, you don't need to go find your purpose. He's given you a purpose. God has graciously given you a purpose in life. And what is that purpose according to these verses? It is to live for him, to live for righteousness. He says, consider the members of your body. And he's thinking here about your, your talents and your abilities and your, your money and your gifts and all that God has given you. And you know, before we came to Christ, we got really, really, really good at using everything that God gives us for sin and unrighteousness, didn't we? And he says, now in Christ, you are no longer a slave, you are united with him, so now take everything that God has given you and now use it for the purpose of righteousness. Don't keep presenting your members, don't keep doing life for unrighteousness, but now Live out a purpose of righteousness, living for him as an as a indication that you are alive with Christ and connected to him. God gave you a purpose to live your life as an offering of righteousness to him. And, and we see this all over the New Testament, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 9, whether at home or absent, what is our goal? What is our aim? To be pleasing to him. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, to all to the glory of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, what do you do? You get up in the morning and you present your body a living sacrifice as an act of worship to God. That's our purpose. That's our new identity in him. Paul says your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That is the new purpose that God gives us in a connection with him in union before him. Number four, we have a new position. Let's see. There we go. Verse 14. Sin shall not be master over you, 
for you are not under law, but under grace. This is your new position. You are not under law, but under grace. Paul here is looking backward here to Romans chapter three where he unpacks this. And and you'll remember that the law is this taskmaster. It it sets a a bar so high that none of us can, can possibly go over it. And that moral law condemns us and weighs down heavy upon us. Uh, we did something new in our family just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, my 10-year-old started track and field, and we do like a club track and field in our community, and um, yeah, we call him Zippy because he's fast and he's little. Uh, his, his real name's Eric, and um, he saw the pole vault and was like, I want to do that. Well, you're too young. Well, no, we're going to try it anyway. And uh, so he's trying to learn how to do pole vault right now, and, and that's awesome, and he's, he's learning the skill. But you, you know what's really, really sad about pole vault, even if you're Sergei Bubka and you, you break the world record, you still end every meet doing what? Right? They raise the bar, you can't get over it, and, and you fault out, right? So even the best in the world can't get over the next bar. And that, that's, that's the picture we see in Romans 3 of the law. There may be some that get higher than others or better than others in a worldly standpoint, but we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, don't we? And here, Paul looks backward and says, Christ came and because you are united with him, what did Jesus do? He took his perfect righteousness and he transferred it into the account of believers. He completed the law. He lived under the law, satisfying its demands. And Paul's going to go on to say in Romans chapter 7, when you come to Christ and are united with him, you die to the law in Christ, and so you are no longer under its condemnation. Justification, you'll remember, is that legal act of God where he declares the sinner not guilty but righteous because of the work of Christ done for him. Paul says it in one verse in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You say, what does that have to do with identity? Because identity has to do with things like this, guilt and condemnation. You ever counseled somebody like that? And they are spinning their wheels in discouragement and despair because of their past, because of guilt, because of condemnation. You ever counseled a perfectionist, right? And they're just always trying to do better and be gooder and and just do whatever they can. And the freedom from feeling like you never measure up, you can't be good enough, all of those die as we come to see this new position that Christ has fulfilled the law, we are no longer under it, we are under grace because of Christ. We have a new position. Number five, we have a new transformation. A new transformation. Look at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. So he goes right back to where he started in chapter 6. We shouldn't continue in sin because we're not under the law but under grace. And then he says a lot of the same things that he's already covered. And he comes back to it now at the end of the section. He says, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. What happens 
when you live out your new identity in Christ? What happens when you use your life for righteousness instead of sin? What happens when you live under grace and don't live in this this treadmill of law-keeping and perfectionism? What happens? You begin to grow. You begin to be sanctified, growing more into the image of Christ. In fact, this is where this text begins to pick up the image language that we saw in Genesis chapter 1. As we grow in righteousness, as we grow in sanctification, what happens is that we begin to reflect that image of God again in a progressive way. Uh, in In chapter 8, verse 29 of Romans, we just flip the page, Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. See, that, that's the goal. The image is established in creation, it's distorted in the fall, and it is transformed and renewed and growing in redemption. And that's what sanctification is all about, and our brothers, uh, Deepak and Jeremy, will unpack that even more for us later on. So as we grow into that, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, as we behold Christ in our new identity, we are transformed into his image from glory to glory to glory. We have a new uh, process that happens here, a new transformation as we look to Christ in our identity. And number six, we have a new future, a new future. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Let's stop right there for a moment. What is the result of living as a slave of sin? What is the result of living in all those other identities that we are prone to create and live for? The outcome of those things is death. I want you to hear this. The only identity that will take you to heaven is identity in Jesus. All other identities lead only to judgment and destruction. Back to the text. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's saying in Christ, in our union with Jesus, we have a secure, eternal future that cannot be taken away. You know, cancer may ultimately defeat you. Life may be hard and full of disappointments. Dreams may not be realized. Brokenness, the brokenness of life in a fallen world may be a daily source of fear and feeling overwhelmed. But listen to me, you can never lose Jesus. You are secure in him, your future is settled, which means you can never lose your true identity. And Paul is so wound up about this, he ends his whole section on this point in Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ, he says, Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing 
will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in, here it is, Christ Jesus our Lord. That is identity and the finality of our union with Christ and the identity we have in him. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, one author put it like this, and I can't do it any better. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am united to Jesus Christ. I won't look, up, look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by presence, learn by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, or ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, back up, let up, or shut up till I've preached up, prayed up, paid up, stood up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I must go till he returns, give till I drop, preach till I'll know, work till he comes, and when he comes to kit his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear. I am united to Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, may God give us grace to live every day in light of this union with him that can never be broken as the anchor of our identity. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed by your kindness in the gospel that you would want us back, that you would make us your own when we rebelled and turned away from being yours. Father, I pray that whatever ways we try, try to do identity apart from you, that you would make us to rest in and revel in and focus on, and lean into, and think about, and meditate on our eternal union with you, and might we think of ourselves in every situation through this amazing lens. Lord, thank you for your son. Help us to live in light of the things that we've learned. In Christ's name, amen. Copyright 2019, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.